You all just sit down, but if you could, grab your Bible, and if you're able, stand. I'm going to read God's Word, and I think it's important that we stand as we hear God's Word spoken to us on this morning. I'm going to be reading in Isaiah, starting in chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, writing chapter 52, starting at verse 13. He says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall provide, divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, amazing words. All of these things that would be done to your son for our benefit, amazing. And he sees and he is satisfied. And it's in his death and resurrection that we too want to be satisfied. It's in that gospel message that we too want to find our hope, to find our being, to find our very life. We pray and I ask that you would help us to understand this word this morning. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. And I would like for you to watch this on the screen.
Jesus says, come follow me. If you're here this morning, you've ever wondered, what's the big deal about Christianity? Why follow Jesus? The heart of the answer is this. All humans have gone astray. Every single one of us have turned to our own way. Like sheep, we were scattered. Turning from God, we became our own master and our own treasure. But God was not willing to leave us that way. God was not willing to let us in our sin. And from ages past, he planned to send this son, the suffering servant, not mainly to be a model of love for us, although he did that, but to be a substitute for you and I, to die for you and I. He made the ultimate sacrifice, and he rose three days later. And it's because of that that you and I can sit in this room today and we can worship a risen Savior. Amazing to me. But you must believe it. You must believe that this is true. You can't accept that it's just factually there. You must believe it and place your trust in Jesus. And Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will give you rest. It's the essence of Christianity. It's the reason we're here. That's the big picture. That's why we celebrate Easter. And I want to show you today, out of this scripture, out of Isaiah, which was quoted often in that little clip, why the suffering servant did what he did and how he did it. It's a tremendously complete picture, actually, this little text of what Jesus did for you. One commentator says, it forms the outer center of this wonderful book of consolation, this book of Isaiah, and is the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy, outstripping itself, has ever achieved. This text in Isaiah. So let's look at it together. This is called a song of the servant. This is the fourth of four songs, the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. This one that we find here. It's made up of five stanzas. It's, it's a, it is a song. It's made up of five stanzas, three lines each. It's kind of laid out in a natural progression, and so we're going to follow that. The first three verses that we read there in chapter 52 give us this big picture of what we're going to see. The next nine verses zoom in, show us what happened to Jesus on the cross, and then the last three verses zoom back out to show us the glorious ending to this majestic day, okay? All of it contained right here in these verses. So let's look at this. Uh, Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely and be high and lifted up. First question you gotta ask is, who is this servant? Now, you know who it is. It's who? Who? We don't know who it is. All right, let's talk about who it is. All right, this is the servant Who? Jesus, all right, somebody got it. This is a servant Jesus. This is none other than Jesus Christ himself. We know that because all through the New Testament, they point back to this particular passage and they say, Jesus fulfilled this. If you look in John 12, Matthew 8, Mark 15, Acts 8, Luke 22, Romans 10, all of these point back and say, this servant is actually Jesus Christ. In fact, 85 times in the New Testament, is this passage either quoted directly or implied in the writings of the New Testament. The things that are written in this chapter, one pastor said, 
The details of this passage are so minute that no human could have predicted them by accident and no imposter fulfilled them by cunning. We are talking about none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the child of the Virgin Mary. That's the servant that Isaiah is looking down the road and he's seeing this Messiah that's coming. Now this verse 13 says that he's going to be high and lifted up. This doesn't, it's not talking about his death on the cross here. It's talking about that at the end of time, Christ is going to be exalted. It's, it's a Philippians 2 look at Jesus. It says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's right. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting. He's going to be high and exalted. Remember, Isaiah here is painting a big picture of what we're getting ready to see. Look at verse 14. He says, many were astonished at you. And then he puts in this little sidebar. He says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When people saw Jesus at his death, they were horrified. They were astonished. They turned their heads because they couldn't stand to look at this disfigured body in front of them. Remember that Jesus had been scourged. His beard had been ripped out. His back was torn. Flesh was exposed. He'd been punched. He'd been slapped. He'd been kicked. He'd been beaten. He'd been forced to carry a cross. And beyond all of this, a crown of thorns was placed on his head. Spikes, not gently placed on his head, but rammed into his skull, crushed into his very skin. And you know what it is when you get a head wound. You know how that bleeds, right? This man was so disfigured by the time that the crowd saw him that you couldn't even tell it was a man. This was humiliation and brutality at its worst mixed before them. They would turn their faces away. What was done to Jesus should have been done to Barabbas and us. It was astonishment. I couldn't believe this picture. Utter shock. But that picture, Isaiah says, that picture of astonishment is nothing compared to the astonishment that you're going to see after a while. Look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they see. And that which they had not heard, they understand. Isaiah says, when this Messiah, when this suffering servant returns, what you're going to learn and what you're going to find out is that that blood that was pouring down his body, that blood that was gushing from his side, that blood was being used to sprinkle the nations. And that all through the sprinkling, he's gathering a people to himself, a people that he loves, a people that that he blesses. Now, the Jews didn't get this. When the Jews read Isaiah, they didn't get this. And the reason they didn't get it is because they didn't understand that between verses 14 and verses 15 stood thousands of years. Between verse 14 and verse 15 is where we find ourselves today. Because the brutal death of Jesus has taken place, but his return has not yet happened. 
And so we find ourselves there 2,000 years later. We understand this because we believe the New Testament and its fulfillment of Isaiah. Jews didn't understand that. So what astonished the people the first time around, the brutal death of this man, will be nothing when he comes riding in on the clouds and says the kings will shut their mouths. There'll be nothing left to say as they see the Messiah coming in. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer is very few. Isaiah's ministry was one that when God told him you're going to minister, Isaiah said, well, how long do I do it? Because God had told him, they won't believe you, they won't understand you, they won't accept you. And Isaiah said, what kind of ministry is that? Well, how long am I supposed to do that? And, and Jesus, God says, for your entire life. They, they won't believe you, but you keep going. So Isaiah writes, how many have believed us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The implied answer is, not very many. Verse 2, he says, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus came out of towns of insignificance. What town was he born in? Somebody tell me. What town was Jesus born in? Bethlehem. What town was he raised in? Nazareth. Both insignificant towns in the region. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. These words young plant here literally mean little bush. It was as if he was just a little bush. Nothing significant. Nothing stately. He had no form or majesty. I kind of snicker sometimes when I go into homes or when I visit places and they have pictures of Jesus hanging there in their homes. Um, Most often... It's a picture of a very uh, stately, beautiful young man, kind of a dashing sort of figure, brown eyes, sort of high cheekbones, sort of a beautiful picture. And of course, Isaiah says, you know, if you really had seen this man, he had no beauty that you would even desire him. If we had a real picture of Jesus, what he really looked like, we'd probably be like the Jews and we'd just discard it not really attractive, not exactly what you want to be called your Messiah. But that was Jesus. Isaiah said this was the the suffering servant. This was the one who came. He, He had no majesty. He wasn't born in pomp and circumstance. He was born lowly and common. Verse 3 says he was despised. That means he wasn't wanted. He was looked down upon. And it says he was rejected by men. He was rejected by his disciples. He was rejected by his nation. And he was ultimately rejected by every single person in this world. You know, I think one of the most staggering pictures in all of the New Testament about the rejection of Jesus is the night when he was taken before Caiaphas, before the high priest, and they had this fake trial, this sham of a trial. And you see Jesus and you read the passages and he's getting uh, interviewed, interrogated, and they're slapping him around. And you see Peter over here. And Peter's sort of hanging out at a distance where he can see what's happening, but he's keeping his hands warm. And like the little video clip says, there's a girl who came and said, aren't you one of of them? Peter says, no, I don't know that man. 
Somebody else comes along and says, no, 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 I, I think you're one of them. I can tell by the accent. You're one of them. And he says, I'm telling you, I don't know the man. And it's a little bit later, third time, somebody goes, you know, I'm pretty sure I saw you in the garden. You're one of them, aren't you? And scripture says that Peter began calling down curses on them, saying, I do not know the man. And in Luke chapter 22, it says, a rooster crowed. And at that point, it says, Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. Now, I can't imagine what that look was like for Peter. I can't imagine what that felt like to have the eyes of the Messiah pierce right into your soul as you made those words, I do not know the man. Jesus faced rejection. He knows what it's like. If you've faced rejection, guess what? You have a friend in Jesus. He's there. He knows what it's like to face rejection. And look what else it says in verse 3. It says he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He knew what it was like to face sorrows. That was his life. Verse 4 says that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. It was as if we said, you're the sinner. You're getting what you deserve from God. May he smite you. And yet, it was our griefs. It was our burdens that he was dying for. You know what sin brings? (laughs) You know what sin brings in your life? Well, the first thing sin brings in your life is a little bit of pleasure. It's kind of fun. Kind of exciting kind of rambunctious, kind of cool. But then the next thing that sin brings is sorrow and grief. The same sin that sets you up and shows you how exciting it is turns around and bites you. That's the nature of sin. It brings sorrow. It brings heartache. promises hope, but it delivers hurt. It promises fun, but it delivers failure. It promises independence, but it brings imprisonment. It promises heaven, delivers hell. That's the nature of sin. And this verse says, Christ bore that for you. There's an old saying out there. I want you to finish it for me. There's an old saying out there, and it goes like this. All that glitters is not gold, right? Sin glitters. It's pretty but it's not gold. It's fool's gold. It'll bite you. And the suffering servant was willing and he did die to take your sins on his back. That's how much he loved you. That's how much he cared about you. Verses 5 and 6 says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes... We are healed. He was wounded. He was crushed. He was chastised. He was beaten. So that who could be healed? Me and you, right? For us. It's amazing. Why was this necessary? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone. There's not a person in this room today that can claim they're innocent. Every single one of us has ran away 
and the Lord has laid upon him all of our iniquities. That's a picture of substitution, right? That's a picture of one person taking the place of another. 2 Corinthians 5 says it like this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did that for you, for me. I hope you never get over that. We sing a lot on Easter, and we talk a lot about the risen Savior, and we we read the familiar stories, but I truly hope that you never get over the fact that God gave himself for you. I hope when you wake up in the morning that that's your motivation. Because let me ask you something. Is your life a mess right now? Because if your life is a mess right now, you can hold on to this. If I have nothing else, I have a Savior who died for me. That's enough to get up in the morning. And if my world starts crumbling all around me, I can flee to the cross and say, He did it for me. It'll stand forever. Whether or not this world gives me what I want, Christ did it for me. Hope you never get over that. I hope that gospel is what motivates you every single day. Now, how did Jesus feel about this? We, we see pictures of Jesus carrying his cross. We see pictures of, going, of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's crying out in agony. How did Jesus really feel about the fact that he was being crucified for you? Did you ever think about that? How did he like this idea? Well, verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep is silent. He didn't open his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment. That means by some sham of a trial. He was oppressed. It wasn't fair. He was taken away. He was cut off from the land. They made his grave with the wicked. How did Jesus feel about this? Do you remember this story when Jesus was in front of Pilate? Pilate was trying to find any way he could to let this guy off the hook. Pilate was trying to find any possible reason to release Jesus, to get rid of the riot that was on his hands. He didn't like this. And every question he would ask Jesus, every charge, that is, that he would bring against Jesus from the Jews, Jesus was just quiet. He was silent. Never said anything. And it says that Pilate was amazed Because you know why? If you and I were there, what would we be doing? (laughs) We'd be crying for our life, right? It wasn't me. I don't deserve this. Jesus didn't, and he had every right to. But he was quiet. He never stopped the process. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly for the sheep. And so he died. Apparently, according to verse 9, he was supposed to be dumped with the other um, bodies of the robbers that were beside him. But a guy named Joseph of Arimathea stepped up and said, you know, I'll take the body. And so because of that, he was buried in a garden. He was buried in a tomb. And so if you look at verse 9, it was fulfilled. He was supposed to have a grave with the wicked, but instead, it was with the rich man. Joseph had a lot of money. He gave him his very own tomb And although Jesus did nothing wrong in word or in deed, he was counted the sinner and he died. You know, if we stopped there, 
it'd be a sad story. If we stopped with the crucifixion, we would be like the two guys on the road to Emmaus. They would think, you know, it's over. It's done. Everything we'd hoped for apparently wasn't right. But Isaiah doesn't stop the picture in verse 9. He adds in verses 10 through 12 so that we see the end. Look at verse 10. It says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's idea. Men were the executioners, yes, but this was God's idea. This was God's plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush him when his soul makes an offering for the guilt. And now look at this next phrase in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. Think about that for a moment. He shall see his offspring. When we have a funeral and we have a dead man laying in front of us in a casket, is he going to see any more of his offspring? His children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? No. So if Isaiah said, he shall see his offspring, what does that have to mean? He's alive. He is no longer dead. He is going to see generation after generation come to know him. He shall see his spiritual children live in him. That's Isaiah's future forecast. That's what you and I see today. We see the offspring. We see those who come to know and love Jesus Christ. And how long will he live? Look at the rest of the verse. He shall prolong his days. Well, think about it like this. If Jesus conquered death, there's not much more that can get to him, is there? How long will he live? Forever. Death is no longer his enemy. He conquered death. So he will live forever. How does Jesus view this work? Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied as Jesus sits at the right hand of the father the father looks across all those who believe on his son and he smiles he smiles he's satisfied he sees what Jesus did he sees the price that Jesus paid his wrath is gone He's a satisfied father and he is pleased to count the righteousness of Christ to sinners like you and I. That's grand. And if that weren't enough, look at verse 12. He says, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This king who lives in heaven will one day come again And when he does, it's like the king who comes back from victory with the enemy. He brings all the spoils with him. And for all of his army, he says, here's the spoils. And one day Jesus is going to share all of eternity, all of heaven, all of the wonders of the Father with us. He's going to divide it. We're going to all be like him in a resurrected body. He counts us as brothers to share in the inheritance. Jesus is preparing a place for you today, beloved. John 14 says it like this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Friend, if you know Jesus Christ, you know the way to get to heaven because it's through him. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you're lost and you need to know the way. And Jesus invites you. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come. Come to me. You see, you were the thorn in his crown. You were the sweat on his brow. You were the nail in his wrist. You were Judas's kiss. That's you. And yet he loved you anyway. And he died for you. Won't you believe in him? I hope that this Easter is the most memorable of your life because you find, refine, reaffirm the assurance that you have in our risen Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, just an amazing story. Just an amazing truth. How the prophet Isaiah from 700 years before Jesus ever even touched foot on the earth, he prophesied exactly what would happen. And Jesus fulfilled it to the minute detail of his clothes being gambled for at his feet while he died. Father, the day that the sky turned black, the day that the curtain temple the temple curtain was torn the day that jesus cried my father my father my god my god why have you forsaken me it was on that day at that moment that he was bearing for us our sin father help us to never forget that and then to rejoice in the fact that three days later he rose again and you said amen to Jesus' death. God, thank you that you're no longer angry at sinners. Thank you that you love us anyway. And Father, I pray today that we would love you more, that we would never forget the price that was paid. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.